Hello again to Talking Flutes, where today I'll be answering some questions sent in by listeners. There are no easy answers, but I'll try and be as clear as I can. The first question is from Roderick Seed, who lives and works in Canada and actually has just published a fascinating book called Mastering the Flute with William Bennett, which is a workbook of the exercise and teaching methods of William Bennett. Well worth a look. Now, Rod's question is, how do you inspire younger students to practice scales who are very reluctant? Do you approach scales in a different way when you teach younger beginner level students? Well, where to start? Scales have such a poor reputation. I think it's partly due to the fact that so many students take exams and in every exam there's a technical element which is always scales and related patterns. The fun part appears to be playing the pieces followed by the boring part playing the scales. So what is a scale? A scale is a sequence or a pattern moving by step that is then repeated in all keys. Scales are the foundation from which music is created So finding a creative way to approach them is of great importance. They also train your ears, develop muscle memory and coordination. I think the key to playing scales and their related patterns well is variety in practice. If you look at the commonest exam scale pattern, it starts on the tonic, goes up two octaves and back down again. Not so exciting or enticing to anyone. So, as with all sequences, scales should be flexible. They can help with every aspect of flute technique, tone, fingers and articulation. They develop your sense of keys and oral awareness. Knowing how to practice makes an incredible difference to how well you play. And the trick from a teacher's perspective is to introduce scales in an exciting, fun format, communicating the important fact that scales help you play so much better. If you can play your scales and related patterns, you can play anything. Some simple variations are changing the rhythm, add different articulations, different dynamics, or changing the colour for more advanced players. Don't always start from the low register. Start from the top note and descend rather than ascend. Go up in a major scale, come down in a minor. Play an arpeggio going up and a scale coming down. Mix and match to create interest. For beginners, you can use just a few notes of the scale to start and then gradually extend the range. I love sequences, and there are many sequence books on the market. A variety of different patterns are just as useful as a scale sequence, and arguably more interesting. You could challenge your students to write their own sequences, perhaps one a week based on the key of the piece they're playing. This can be as simple or basic as required, it's just a repeated pattern. Maybe to add variety, we should talk about modes rather than scales. Western classical music is based mainly on major and minor scales. I think it would be so much more interesting to introduce modes and the way in which different intervals can create different emotional reactions. A mode is just a type of scale, and there are seven modes which originated in ancient Greece. They all have Greek names. The Ionian is the major scale we recognise in Western classical music. We could also add to our list variations of pentatonic and blues scales. Play your students' musical examples of different modes or styles. So much more interesting than just classical. This is a subject close to my heart, as I have an online beginner course called Kickstart Flute, and that is based around 24 duets of all genres and styles, rather than the frequently heard Christmas carols and nursery tunes. 
With younger beginner level students, imitation works well, especially if it's in a fun way, for example, a jazz rhythm and interesting mode. So the teacher could play a part of a scale, blues, pentatonic, or the more common versions, and the student could copy. This is a chance to develop their oral awareness by changing dynamics, rhythms, and articulations. There are so many options. So many thanks for the question, Rod, and I hope I've managed to give you some extra ideas. The next question is from Barbara Taylor, a woodwind teacher in Suffolk in the UK. How do you get your breathing and sound back when a new job gives little time for practice? This is a problem so many players have when their time is restricted due to other commitments. Best advice I can give is to look at the balance of your practice so that even when you have reduced time, you can touch on the main areas of technique that keep you moving forward. The other thought is that you don't always need your flute to practice some techniques, breathing being one of those. Breath control is so crucial to successful fluting. It's not just the blowing, but also, as important, the breathing in. You can practice breath control wherever you are. Start by slowing your breath down. Be mindful of how you breathe. Then breathe in slowly over a count of, say, four beats, and out over four beats. Raise your awareness of how the breath feels. Can you fill up completely over your four beats and empty completely over four? Use your tummy muscles to breathe, taking care not to let your shoulders rise. Then change the beats. In over four, out over six. In over six, out over two, and so on. This variety of breathing is exactly what happens when you play pieces. When you then pick your flute up, Remember to be aware of how your breath feels. Ask yourself, am I relaxed? Are my shoulders relaxed? Are my tummy muscles working? So breath control is first about awareness of how you breathe in and out. The sound quality always seems to be the first thing that disappears when there's little time for practice. And if you lose the focus of your sound, then you are also probably using or losing too much air which of course then affects your breath control. But even a few minutes of localised practice each day will help. The embouchure consists of many muscles that need to be controlled. Playing the flute is in some ways simple. You breathe in, push the air out using your tummy muscles and shape the airstream using your lips. So introduce a few basic exercises to help control and help your flexibility. For example, bending notes. Play a low A and using your jaw, move the airstream up and down. You will hear changes of the pitch, the colour and the dynamic. Harmonics. You can play harmonics using any note as your bass, but the lower the note, the more overtones you'll be able to play. Harmonics are all the notes you can play using one fingering, but changing the speed and direction of the airstream. Harmonics strengthen your embouchure muscles, so to play a harmonic series, the airspeed needs to increase and the direction of the air should rise slightly. Learning to play the series in the correct order helps develop the muscle control of the embouchure and so develops your sound. Colours. Learning to shape the inside of your mouth by using vowel shapes helps your flexibility and creates more interesting sounds. Play a low register note and try to feel the shape of the inside of your mouth. Then change it by thinking of a vowel shape. For example, oo, ah, or e. Even if you don't hear a difference, the exercise is helping you become more flexible and will help your tone development. 
Try saying or singing the vowel sounds first and then play them. I will come back and revisit tonal colours in depth in a later podcast because they are so important for introducing variety in your tone. I mentioned at the beginning about finding a balance in your practice. So whether you have five minutes or five hours, keep a variety within that time. Imagine a pie chart and divide it up into segments. So if you have five segments, the first is very short, a gentle warm-up, maybe with a beautiful melody. Then move on to some tone exercises, bendy notes, harmonics, some long tones. Third segment, warm your fingers up with some simple sequences. Start slow and then develop the speed. Fourth segment, work on your pieces. And the final segment could be articulation, sequences, studies, etc. Each practice session makes this around. Nothing is rigid. Be flexible. So thank you, Barbara, for the question. Try and practice little and often and don't be too hard on yourself when your work keeps you busy. The final question for today's pod is from Ivan Alekin, teacher and composer and arranger work in America. How do you create your own warm-up routine and how creative, flexible or strict you can be with it depending on what your day-to-day aims are? Warm-up routines should be just that, warm-ups and not too strenuous. I remember a teacher used to say, get up, brush your teeth, practice your scales. That's a recipe for disaster because your facial muscles will be strained in no time at all and anything after the scales will not sound good. We also have to distinguish between warm-ups and practice. You might have a quick warm-up of embouchure, fingers and tongue, but that isn't necessarily enough to progress your techniques, which need longer and more intense work. There are so many similarities between musicians and sportsmen and women. Balance, rhythm, timing, accuracy, commitment, focus, breath control and control of various muscle groups. A 100-metre runner would never practice by just running 100 metres. Muscles don't work when they're cold, so they would first gently stretch their muscles to warm up and maybe jog for a few minutes to help general awareness of how their bodies feel. Then maybe they would jog 300 metres and run 100 metres around a 400 metre track and then repeat. Jog 300, run 100. Other exercises might involve weight training as well as the aerobic training. At the end of the session, a cool down and more stretching. We as musicians should also adopt some of the same practices so that our sessions are productive without straining those important facial muscles or pulling any tendons or muscles in the hands and arms. Playing a beautiful melody in the low register is a great way to start. Letting the embouchure gently warm up, not trying to force the sound, just observing and listening to how you sound. To aid and develop your creativity, Make up your own melodies, so improvise. Remember, there are no wrong notes. It's your melody, you own it, and you can go anywhere with it. There are no rules. But if you think about a rhythm and timing, it will help structure your tune. Now, in terms of a routine, depending on your day-to-day aims, think of your warm-up as laying down the foundations for a successful practice session. If you plan a long session, then increase the warm-up to include embouchure, fingers and tongue. If you have limited time, then a slow melody is fine. I often start with Fauré's Pavan, or his Elegy written for cello, which is the most beautiful melody. I'll play these in a few different keys and feel how my sound is. Then I'll move on to some long tones to aid consistency and introduce the middle register. 
I always work on my colours or different sounds by changing mouth shapes, more of which in a later podcast. Then fingers, which often means something like toughnail and gobo daily exercises, the first and the second. I'm a lover of sequences, so I will also play Reichert or Makar daily exercises, or use my own publication called Sequentials. Sequences have the advantage of being flexible in terms of speed, key, dynamic, articulation, rhythm and colours. So they're perfect practice partners. So remember to be flexible and creative in your warm-up and not to be too ambitious too early. So I do hope these answers are of interest and please do email me with any other questions at flutepodcasts at gmail.com. Next time, I'm chatting with David Heath, one of my contemporaries, a maverick flutist and composer. We had a very lively and interesting conversation, so please tune in next time to Talking Flutes. Talking Flutes is a Trevor James Flute podcast production. More information can be found at trevorjamesflutes.com.